as I learned to love myself more, I actually started eating a lot more than I had been eating and actually nourishing my body. And that's the physical shift that I think was so powerful. And as I started to shift that inner voice, it became so much easier to eat really nutritious, but not think about calories or macros or deprivation, but think of how do I best nourish my body? From losing over 70 pounds by healing past emotional traumas, Katie Wells is a mom of six. The founder and voice of Wellness Mama has one of the most trusted websites and community for moms and is the co-founder and CEO of wellness.com, a company dedicated to create natural personal care products that outperform regular alternatives. And Katie is named one of the top 100 influencers in the health and wellness space. And she's here today. I am so excited for you guys to hear this interview. We talk about emotional trauma, intermittent fasting, time-restrictive eating, different supplements, as well as parenting with a holistic approach while still allowing your kids to enjoy life's pleasures. Welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. But before we get into today's episode with Katie, I wanted to give a shout out to podcast listener, Carrie Kelly. They reviewed and wrote, I followed Bethany on Instagram for a few years now, and I was so excited when she announced the pod. I love her no-nonsense approach to true wellness. There is no hidden agenda, no promotion of a specific diet or trend. She is incredibly well-educated, honest, and transparent, sometimes even funny. It's just nice to have this level of realness. It's hard to come by these days. I learn so much in each episode. Grateful for this show. Wow. Thank you so much, Carrie Kelly, for that wonderful rating and review. And as always, I love reading all of your reviews. And if you haven't done so already, please do so. It does help the show. It helps get it into more ears and uh, helps just get it out there for those that may need to hear it and are looking for some true wellness podcasts. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode. It's getting into summer, which means more traveling. But with traveling comes the headache of opting for toxic products small enough to be TSA passed, such as mainstream mini toothpaste tubes. But surprisingly, in my latest regular shipment of my bite toothpaste bits, I noticed on the package it says TSA approved even their mouthwash, because their, quote, mouthwash isn't actually a liquid. Just like their toothpaste bits, Bites mouthwash are tablets you can take anywhere and even stash in your purse anytime you need to rinse your mouth and freshen up. Just bite down on a tablet and chew, then take a sip of water and swish it around in your mouth as you would mouthwash. Just spit it out and then you're good to go. I absolutely love Bite and their non-toxic oral care. Everything from their toothpaste bits to their mouthwash and even their teeth whitening kits. And 
they now have a charcoal version. And I know charcoal on your teeth sounds like they would actually make your teeth more dirty, but it's quite the opposite. Activated charcoal naturally helps whiten your teeth. So you get a two-for-one deal with toothpaste and gentle whitening, all in a non-toxic tablet that comes in glass jars. So if you've been looking for a natural toothpaste without the paste, try Bite Toothpaste Tablets and experience what I, my husband, and so many others are obsessed with. Bite is offering my listeners 20% off your first order. Go to trybite.com slash digest or use code digest at checkout to claim this deal. I hope you guys love it. If you're not subscribed to my newsletters, they come out every Friday and they're called Friday Finds. This is information that only my subscribers get in their inbox. I share stuff like non-toxic air fryers and kitchen appliances, new food finds, product recalls, food news, and food products that aren't even on the market yet. But I've got the scoop. This is not published anywhere else and cannot be found on my blog. So be sure you're in the know and subscribe to my weekly newsletters by going to littlesipper.com slash subscribe and enter your email. That's all you have to do. So go to L-I-L-S-I-P-P-E-R.com forward slash subscribe to get exclusive information on everything food. Katie Wells, thank you so much for coming on the show today, also known as the Wellness Mama. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So where do we begin? Probably a lot of podcast listeners already know who you are. They already know your story. But for those that are listening that don't, why don't you introduce yourself and share a little bit about your journey um, for those that don't know your history? Yeah, absolutely. So my most important job is I'm a mom of six and the kids range ages seven to 16. But my background actually in college was much more in the research, uh, international law, potentially going into politics realm, which is what I thought I was going to do with my life. And then two things sort of serendipitously lined up that totally shifted my life's purpose. And I'm so grateful that they did. When I was pregnant with my first, I started having some weird health symptoms. And then at the six-week follow-up appointment after I had him, I was waiting for the doctor who was in a delivery. And so I was sitting in the waiting room, nursing this baby, reading through everything I could find to read because I was so bored. And I came to, I believe it was Time Magazine. And there was an article and it said that for the first time in two centuries, the current generation of American children would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And holding this tiny, perfect baby, that just really stood out to me. And as I went on to read about the rise of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune disease and all the things our kids would face that we now know are very common statistics. Unfortunately, I something shifted in me that day and I vowed that that wasn't good enough for my kid and it wasn't good enough for anybody's kid. And I wanted to contribute to changing those trends for the sake of all of our kids. And at the same time, I was having the beginnings of my own health struggles and was told at that appointment, like, oh, those are all just very common postpartum you're just a woman, those things, you just get used to them. That's kind of comes with the territory. Um, but I wasn't happy with that answer either. And I didn't feel like they were common symptoms. And so that led me into a research path, 
having never really been exposed to the world of natural health and just kind of, even though we ate very clean when I was growing up, just kind of relying on what I thought was the conventional knowledge. Um, but it led me to a research path and I turned to my background at the time that was in journalism and I was working for a newspaper and I was a journalist and started turning that toward trying to figure out my own health answers. And looking back now, I can say, oh, if you want to create autoimmune disease, just do all the things I did. Just like eat really poorly throughout high school and college, be super, super stressed, don't sleep enough. And you're probably like 80% of the way there. And that is what had happened to me. But it took me um, years and eight doctors to finally actually even get the diagnosis of Hashimoto's. And then years beyond that to now be fully in remission. And I consider myself not even having Hashimoto's because I don't take anything for it and all my levels are normal. Amazing. And then for time, uh, when was that? How many years ago was that when you were reading that magazine and that thing clicked? That was 2006. Wow. I mean, and now 2023, you look amazing. It seems like you're doing amazing. You have six kids. (laughs) and uh, you're thriving. And so with Hashimoto's, that was after your first pregnancy you were diagnosed. It was after my first that I started getting symptoms. I actually wasn't diagnosed till after my third. Okay. How did you overcome and be who you are today as far as, you know, taking the the non-Western medicine approach and going more a, a holistic approach? And what were the steps and how did you heal and uh, specifics in what you did? Yeah, it was definitely multifaceted. And it's one thing that if anything, I've come to this point 15 to 17 years later of realizing just how individualized health is. And so I have now become one of my firm first principles is that we are each our own primary healthcare provider and that we can work with amazing doctors and practitioners as partners in that. But that at the end of the day, we are each the one in the driver's seat when it comes to our own health. And unfortunately, I know many people have had similar experiences of having to step into that role when they couldn't get answers from practitioners or from doctors. Um, But it really sort of developed in layers for me. So at first, as I learned about even just the basics of nutrition and health, I started putting in place pieces that did seem to help quite a bit. But then over the next eight years, probably, I realistically tried pretty much every system that was out there or certainly every system that I knew about. So I had tried every approach. I had done AIP. I had done keto. I had done like pro-metabolic. I had done all the different potential ones. I had spreadsheets of supplements. I had tested my genes. I had worked with practitioners. I had lab testing and hair testing and everything that could you could possibly test. And I was following it all to a T. And then I realized there was another layer there as well, which is that mental emotional piece that for me was a big key that I had ignored for a long time, just kind of thinking like, those obviously aren't connected to my physical health. I feel fine most days. I'm not going to even pay attention to those. And I slowly began to really understand. I read The Body Keeps the Score by Vessel Vanderkirk and started to really realize just how connected our mind and body are and realize that I, I could do all the things for physical health in the world. But if I didn't also address the inner side, I at least wasn't giving myself the best shot at healing. And I think that's the same with, I kind of use the analogy as well with people who are getting into natural health and it's so exciting and they want to try all the new fancy supplements and they want to try all the new fancy biohacking devices. And I think those things can be awesome. But I think the foundational things are kind of the important 80-20 that we get in place first before we start bolting on the more complicated stuff or the more nuanced supplements or whatever it is. So the things like sleep and morning sunlight and hydration and just basic nutrient-dense food before we start getting concerned with our exact 
macros or micronutrient levels that get the foundation in place. Same thing with, I think if we're not at least touching on the mental and emotional health side, we can do all the physical stuff in the world. But in my case, I had a um, sexual assault from high school that was still causing a lot of very much body keeps the score kind of reaction. So even though I was eating very clean and I was sleeping and I was doing all the things I thought I was supposed to do, my body didn't feel safe. I felt constantly in a state of fight or flight. Physiologically, we would say I was in sympathetic nervous system all the time. And so it's very hard to rest and digest and heal when your body doesn't feel safe. So I think that's another key for a lot of women. But I, I think it also really brought to my attention that so many women were going through a similar path and being told by doctors that these things were normal, which now anytime I hear the word normal, I encourage people to really delve in because what is normal in our society may not be common or it may be common, but not optimal. And it, we can even see that in things like lab ranges. The lab ranges of what could be normal for a thyroid doesn't necessarily indicate healthy thyroid function. It indicates an average of people who are tested for thyroid issues. So I really encourage people to like, like I said, step into the driver's seat of being their own primary healthcare provider and then start to figure out those individualized pieces for themselves. Because I think that's where the empowerment of change that actually lasts really comes from is that ownership and also stepping into kind of an end of one experiment and figuring out what's going to work for you. Yeah. And that's a great point because average does not really equal normal or it does not equal optimum health, as you mentioned. And so I think a lot of people, again, they, they may come back and get test results and just get from their doctor, oh, well, this is normal. This is typical. This is average. You're in the average zone, which as we know now, the average American is now going to be, you know, borderline obese. And by 2030, I believe it's like one in one in two people are going to be obese, not just overweight. And it's it's so hard. But again, as you mentioned, each person does have different layers and health is individualized and the whole trauma part is huge. And that's something that I think a lot of practitioners don't bring up or they may just bring it up, but they're not, it's not a real main focus. And so for you, how did you get to that point of, oh, wow, I think I need to heal some emotional trauma because you lost over 70 pounds just from healing past traumas, correct? Yes. And I think, I do think there's an element of all the stuff I had been doing to try to support my physical health for so many years. Um, I had been building at least a nutritional foundation. I had been working on my stress. So I think my body was in a place where it was ready to respond when my when my mind and my emotions were ready. Um, but I kind of threw everything at the wall and tried everything from typical talk therapy to hypnosis to um, all of the somatic trauma release therapies to tapping. And I think it really was partially a combination of all of those that helped. But another thing that it really highlighted for me was that, you know, there's all these amazing experts in the health and wellness field. And I think they there's so many of them that do incredible work. But I learned the hard way. I can't just take the approach that worked for them and take it as a blueprint and do it for me. And the same is certainly true when it comes to the emotional and inner side. There's very much an individualized approach and what works really well for one person might not be the answer for someone else. But at the same time, just like all these health experts, just like when it comes to these somatic or emotional therapies, it's I think we can learn something from each of those approaches, even if the exact blueprint isn't going to work for us. And I think that comes down to approaching these things with a mindset of curiosity rather than judgment. And I think often uh, even small shifts can make a huge difference. Like I know first being 
diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune disease, I sort of shifted into this mindset of like, oh, my body's attacking itself. My body's out to get me. And coming to realize like, no, my body's always on my side. My body's always trying to move toward the state of healing. So instead of judging my body or being angry at it for not doing what I want it to do, how can I approach this with curiosity? And how can I ask better questions internally to help figure out what would support my body or to maybe figure out what things I could remove that are making it harder for my body. Um, and that also led into the, the kind of mindset concept of that. I stopped saying I'm sick and I started saying I'm healing. I stopped asking internal questions like, why can't I lose weight? And started asking things like, how can I make it so fun to feel better every single day? Things like that. And I feel like the questions we give our subconscious, it will work to answer. And if, especially if there's an emotional piece there, starting to ask ourselves better questions can help to start to unravel some of those layers and start to get better answers. Yeah. Well, the whole thing about telling yourself the the negative, I'm sick, I'm ill, I have autoimmune disease, I'm this, I'm that, I'm fat, I'm whatever, it truly does have a huge impact. Uh, speaking from a personal experience as well, and always just saying, oh, I'm sick. Like even, even the common cold, you know, if you think you're getting sick or getting a cold, you're probably going to get a cold. And it just it's your subconscious. But if you say, oh, no, I'm just like feeling a little run down. Maybe I'll just take a nap and I'll feel better. And that typically is the outcome. And so the mind plays a huge role. And even the, the emotional therapy, like you said too, each person reacts differently. So what may work for this person, EMDR or you know this or that therapy may not work for the other person. And they're thinking, man, I, I went to this, this workshop. I went to this retreat. Everyone else experienced great things and I didn't. Why? It doesn't mean you're broken. You're not, it's not working for you. It's just maybe you need something different. And so that's a great thing to, to bring up. And so what do you feel that really worked for you? And I know, again, if people are listening, they're like, oh, maybe I should try that. But what did work for you? And also, how did you come to the realization that I really do need to deal with some emotional trauma? Was it therapy and someone said it to you or did you just have an aha moment? Um, I wish I could say that I like logic my way there or just researched it and realized it and then chose it and it all worked out. Um, but it was one of those things that I ignored until I literally couldn't ignore it anymore. And I think there's that cliche saying that we only change when the, the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. And I think without even realizing it of the tracks that were running in the background for me, that process started happening. Um, but I think two things sort of lined up together that really helped. And one was on the more physical aspect of health. And then one was on the emotional and mental side. Um, and it was, I was actually recording a podcast with someone and did a version of somatic therapy with them, not intending to really trigger any emotions at all, but just it was something this person did with podcast guests to help like kind of get in the zone before podcasts and make sure you were like connected and had good rapport. And so I didn't technically want to do this thing. And it was in a form of body work that also involved being like lifted off the ground at different points. And at that point, I was so in my head because of the excess weight that I would never let myself be picked up because I was worried I'd be too heavy and the person couldn't lift me and all these things. So I resisted it. And finally gave in and did it. And when I got picked up off the ground, mind you, like a foot and a half off the ground, there was no physical danger. I was completely safe, but my nervous system did not feel that because it, I was having to confront some of those initial layers of the emotional side. And 
as the therapy started happening, I had sort of a like regression moment where I went back through all of that. Like I relived the trauma in real time, essentially, like almost in a like psychedelic type. There's no substances involved, but I relived the entire trauma in like hyperspeed and then like sort of relived other emotional moments through my past. And when I finally got put back down, I shook for two hours, like that somatic emotional release that you see when animals almost get killed and they then like their nervous systems equalize, um, which is the reason we also don't see animals walking around with PTSD is because they are their nervous system is designed to have that somatic release when they have that really big spike of adrenaline or a near-death experience. But as humans, we have the ability to consciously override that, which is what I had done in the that moment of sexual assault. It was the physical pain, certainly, and all of the things that went with that. But it was also, I hated feeling helpless. That was actually the worst part was I felt completely helpless. And I vowed in that moment, like, I will never be helpless again. I will always be in complete control. And so I had constructed all of these elaborate walls to protect myself, which meant that for all those years, I had never screamed. I had never cried. I had never been in touch with whole layers of emotions because I was so determined to protect myself from ever getting hurt again. And in that moment, all of those things sort of bubbled up at once. And I shook for hours after. And the crazy part is the next day, I didn't even think that would be at all connected to the physical health side or to weight loss yet. I just realized I'd had this crazy emotional experience and I had lost eight pounds by the next day, which if you look at weight loss, that's not technically possible, you know, with laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I think, truly like stress weight and just like that release happening. And then from then on, the the rest of the weight sort of just effortlessly came off as I kept working through that. I then became very aware this was something that obviously was still affecting me. So then I started actually uh, intentionally doing a lot of these different therapies. And at the same time, as I learned to love myself more, I actually started eating a lot more than I had been eating and actually nourishing my body. And that's the physical shift that I think was so powerful is I had been operating for like a decade from this perspective of trying to punish my body into being a smaller size or to look a certain way and hating my body. Um, I had even seen my daughter see me look in the mirror one day and I saw it register on her face that I was looking at myself with this sort of self-loathing. And, and that was one of the initial reasons too. I was like, I have to fix this. I can't pass this on to my daughters. This is not what I want for them. Um, and as I started to shift that inner voice, it became so much easier to eat really nutritious, but not think about calories or macros or deprivation, but think of how do I best nourish my body? How do I best give it signals that it's safe, that I'm healing, that everything's okay? And so I ended up actually eating a lot more food while I was losing 70 plus pounds um, and really focusing on just nourishing myself. And I think that mental shift as well, which all of us can slowly make by paying attention to that inner voice away from deprivation and dieting and all of that and into how do I best love myself? How do I best nourish myself? How do I best give my body what it needs? What are the most nutritious foods I can give my body in the food that I'm going to eat today? I think even just that mindset, it puts our bodies in such a much better receptive place to even be able to digest the food that we're putting in it. But so those are the two things that lined up was that pretty profound emotional shift that happened during somatic therapy and then learning how to sort of reprogram the way I thought about food and what I put in my body in a positive versus a negative light. Yeah. Wow. So many great tips there. And it is really true that when you start to feel good emotionally on the inside, you do actually take care of your body. And again, from experience, if I feel kind of like just crappy emotionally, I'm honestly not going to opt for the best, healthiest food 
right? It's, it's kind of like an all or nothing thing. But then when you, when you start to feel good about yourself, when you have that self-confidence, you choose better food, better choices, better friends, like everything. And so it, it feel like it does really start emotionally. And then when you make that switch, you will just naturally opt for healthier foods, starting to nourish your body, things like that. And that whole piece of when you said, you know, you were looking in the mirror and you saw your daughters and you were like, I don't want to pass this down. Was, was that that moment that just sparked you into, to being like, I'm, I'm going to love myself. I, I don't want to pass this on. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I think that was definitely one of those really lightning bolt. The pain of staying the same is now greater than the pain of changing moments of like whatever it takes to address this and to change. It's now important for me to do that because I also think when it comes to parenting, which is a whole topic in and of itself that we could talk for days on, um, I think what we model is so much more profound than what we say. And so I realized even if I said all these things to my daughters that were 100% true about how I felt about them, about how incredible they were and how capable they were and all these things, if I didn't model those things, what were they actually going to pay attention to? And it also really started to like open my eyes to the idea of addressing, especially if we have any childhood trauma, the inner child, which I know has been talked a lot about in sort of mainstream culture lately, which I love. But with the idea that for any of our children, we would never speak to them the way we speak to ourselves. We would never deprive them of food to try to punish them into being a smaller size. We would never, you know, these things that we do to ourselves as behaviors, we would never do those to our children. And so if we can go back and address our own inner child and actually show our inner child love and resolve whatever those things were that happened at those different ages, that's also a step that helps a lot of people. But I think for parents, especially an important one to model, because like I said, what we say is they will hopefully listen to at least until a certain point. But I think what we model is much more profound and we can't give them the gift of modeling something until we actually can do it. And so that's for me when I really started to pay attention to that side a whole lot more. If you're listening to this and you have gut issues, well, keep listening because it turns out everything you think you knew about probiotics may be wrong. You guys, it can get pretty confusing with the market saturated with probiotic everything. I mean, there's even probiotic tortilla chips. Come on now, really? (laughs) I need to give you my personal take and share what I got introduced to back in October of 2022. And that is Seed. Seeds DS01 plant-based capsule is not only a probiotic, but a prebiotic. There are 24 different strains of specifically formulated probiotics targeted for digestive health, gut immunity, as well as additional systematic benefits. One of my favorite things about Seed is that it's a capsule within a capsule. That's right, there's actually a prebiotic capsule encapsulating the probiotic inside, which ensures that the probiotics actually make it to your colon with 100% survivability. But you may be asking, so what does Seed DSO-1 actually do? Well, many think of pre and probiotics as only gut support, but it does way more than that. It 
actually supports the gut barrier, which is where most of our immunity is and a vital part of our health. But it also supports other areas of the body for whole body benefits, such as skin health, heart health, and micronutrient synthesis. So get the real deal in a symbiotic, one that's backed by clinical trials and scientific data. So get the real deal in a symbiotic, one that's backed by clinical trials and scientific data. Visit seed.com slash digest and use code digest to receive 30% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash digest and use code digest. I hope you guys love it. What What's the secret to, to loving your body and any advice you can give to those wanting to love their body, but they're bombarded with the negativity of their peers, social media, and even their family members, unfortunately? Yeah. I think one good clue of that is your own inner talk, especially anything that starts or is around the words, I'll be happy when, or I really wish that, because often those are sort of stories that we're telling ourselves. Um, and I think it's Naval Ravikant who says that, um, desire is a contract we make with ourselves to not be happy until we get some kind of outcome. And so I had that story too, like, oh, if only I was this size, then I would be happy. Or if only I looked like this, then I would be happy. And what I've realized in that process was I was trying to make that contract with myself for a future date, but I had the power in that moment already to choose to learn to be happy. And I don't think it's an overnight thing. We can't just immediately choose that we're going to be happy from now on and it just happens. But I do think it's a thing we can learn and a pattern we can pay attention to and begin to shift within ourselves. And when I shifted into that place, which did take time of loving myself where I was and having acceptance, and also that doesn't mean not still having ideas of where I want to go or things that I want to work on, but loving myself where I was and choosing to learn to be happy where I was instead of letting it to be dependent on a future date, I started to look at things differently and to make decisions more effortlessly. So I was no longer fighting my body. I was trying to nourish my body. I didn't feel like I was at war with myself anymore. And so I think that was one of those those sort of mindset shifts that did take a while, but made a huge difference. And also, spoiler alert, when we have those stories about I'll be happy when, we're not going to be happy when unless we address the inner side. I know so many people, and you hear these stories all the time, people who did get to their ideal size that they had in their mind and they still weren't happy or got whatever the possession was that they were so excited about. And while it might have made them feel happy for a few days, it didn't lead to lasting happiness. And I think that doing that inner work is what leads to the long-term ability to have happiness regardless of what's happening around us. Yeah, for sure. Everyone, when they attain or they get whatever they were searching for, wanting forever, and they finally get it, then they're not satisfied and they want more. Or they 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 realize, well, gee, I'm still not happy. What's going on here? Um, and did you have any negativity from your family members or peers or um, why you were going through this or were they pretty much all supportive? Um, This question just comes up just because just in today's day and age, there's so much noise, there's so much negativity. You're trying to work through your own issues and you're just getting bombarded by, I mean, even social media. Yeah, you don't know these people, but still sometimes it's like 
gee, just like, leave me alone. You don't know me. You know, like, did you ever experience any of that? I did. And it was a beautiful lesson as well. And thankfully my actual in real life support group was incredible and very supportive throughout the whole thing. But you're right. Being in the online world has been such a unique learning experience. And in the same week, I would have comments from people about me weighing too much and other people saying I look like I was becoming anorexic. And I had to learn to kind of cultivate this idea that what other people think of me is none of my business and to really try to stay grounded in what my purpose was and not in the game that is social media. Um, back to Naval, he's got another quote that says, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And I feel like that's what approval on social media is. Not that social media can't be a, an amazing tool to reach people and build community and share important information, but I think the game of trying to just garner attention and likes on social media is one of those sort of play stupid games, win stupid prizes, things that even if you win, you kind of also lose. Um, not to say it was an easy lesson. And I definitely had weeks, um, especially probably like 10 years ago now, I found someone, I had a Gomi thread and I made the mistake of reading through it. And that kind of threw me off for a couple of weeks, but it was a great lesson in learning not to pay attention to the comments and to really keep my focus on how can I actually provide value and help and support for other people and build community. Because I think those are huge factors and they're very needed in today's world. Yeah, they're so needed in today's world and great tips. Just don't even dig into those comments for, you know. Um, now, I want to switch gears a little bit here because you are a mother. And so how do you navigate being a mother who is super into natural eating and being living a holistic way, but also just not restricting your kids in their own journey and growing up and not wanting to deprive them and enjoying their their childhood and making them feel like the black sheep of their group? Yeah, oh, this is such a good question. I'm so glad you asked this. Um, and I think there's a beautiful balance here too that is definitely a, a learning game as we go through the, the journey of motherhood for sure. Um, but I to your point, I never wanted to restrict my kids because as a silly example, I wasn't allowed to get my ears pierced until I was a teenager. And I always was angry about that as a kid. And then I wanted to get a second piercing and my mom was adamantly against it. And so then when I was 18, I ended up at some point with 33 piercings. But it made me realize that at least in some kids who have temperaments like mine, if you overly restrict something, you make it more appealing. And you potentially create the a potential for a pendulum effect where they're going to swing very far in the other direction. I also realized early on in motherhood that we don't actually control our children. Um, so this is one of my first principles of parenting is that each of my children are their own infinite autonomous beings entirely separate of me. And that while I'm here to hopefully guide them and help them and be their mother and have a lifelong relationship with them, I don't own them, I don't control them, and I don't want to. Um, and so that was something I, I learned early on and tried to really integrate from the beginning. And so I've tried to view parenting decisions through that lens um, and also through the lens of back to the point of modeling, that what we model is gonna be infinitely more powerful than what we say. Um, one advantage I have is that with six kids, they've sort of developed their own culture of siblings. So often they have built in this culture and things like healthy eating or being outside or getting lots of activity are just built into their culture. They're not even things I'm encouraging so much anymore as they're just part of our, our family culture. But when I, try to really view things with the idea that we can't control our children, which anybody who maybe doesn't agree with that, just if you've had a two-year-old, ask yourself, can you really actually control them? Like, yes, you can physically put them in their room maybe, but you are not gonna make them eat if they don't wanna eat. You're not gonna make them clean their room if they don't wanna clean their room. Um, and so approaching it that way, I, I looked at like, well, what are the actual breakdowns of responsibility and autonomy within our household culture? And what I realized is as the parent and the person who pays for the groceries, 
my responsibility is to make sure we always have nutrient-dense food available and to teach them in an age-appropriate and fun manner and educate them about nutrition and about the ways those hard-learned lessons that I talked about of how food is actually really nourishing for us and letting them understand that versus that deprivation mindset of calories or restriction or food being bad or guilt. Um, so I tried to build those things into our family culture. But the other part of that is that they, as their own infinite autonomous beings, are responsible for choosing what they eat and when they eat and how much they eat. And that's not mine to dictate. And so I always make sure there's healthy food available. For the most part, I don't have food I wouldn't want them to eat in the house anyway. And at any given meal, they can choose to eat or not eat. They can choose if they're hungry, if they're not hungry. And when they're not in our house, I'm not going to restrict their food choices or even try to put any kind of fear into their food choices. I know that we've had all these conversations about education. I know that they understand micronutrients and that they understand nourishing their bodies and they understand what it feels like to feel good from eating healthy food. And I understand that if they eat a cupcake at a birthday party, it's not the end of the world. And it might actually be a great feedback loop because they're not used to that kind of food. So they might feel bad. And on the, the social group side, what I've noticed that's really interesting, because I did wonder with like six kids being homeschooled with a weird, crunchy mom, if they were going to feel weird in their friend group. And what's actually happened is they we have a, a lot of kids in our area. And a lot of the moms are somewhat in the similar vein of healthy living. But even before all of those families were there, they sort of created such a culture around it themselves that their friends started getting on board. And now most weekends, I have a huge group of teenagers, sometimes like 15 teenagers in my house, and they're saunaing and cold plunging and working out and playing outside and eating protein and greens and all these kind of things because that's what's built into their culture. And so I think when we trust our kids to understand things and we don't dumb it down for them, and we understand how capable they are and we respect their autonomy, we'll often be amazed at the choices they make because they want to, not because they have to. Katie, I mean, I, you hit the nail on the head in so many different directions because it's true when you over restrict, first of all, they're going to want to rebound and they're going to want to rebound hard and they're going to want to eat all the Oreos and all the Cheez-Its because they never were able to have a bite of it. And to your point too is, you know, focusing on, hey, bringing them up in the aspect of this is what what's going to nourish your body and this is going to make you strong this is going to make you healthy you know carrots are good for your eyes you know these things of of education and making it around the health and nutrition aspect and then say you know um this you know may break out your skin like that's something that my my mother would tell me when i was younger is like you know like you can eat these or you can have this sugar but the sugar is going to like make you break out and so i i had a lot of acne when i was younger and going through adolescence and that was something that i was cognizant of i was like oh well i don't want to get a pimple like i don't want to eat this candy bar now you know not to say i didn't ever eat candy bars let me tell you but <laughs> you know it's just something in the mindset and then also uh, what you said, like, yeah, exactly. Let them have a cupcake at a birthday party and maybe they will feel, feel sick and they'll know, oh, that's why we don't eat these all the time, you know? Great. And if not, like that's, you know, very much lower than 90-10 and their bodies are resilient and capable. And I'm like, I also make sure they understand that part. Like one cupcake is not going to derail your entire health or make you have all these health problems. It is the dose makes the poison. It's understanding, you know, like lean more towards nourishing than the things that are just not nourishing. Not that they're bad. We're not going to put labels on them. But the other cool result of this is that 
my teenagers especially have taken such ownership of their own health that they have asked for and are choosing to take supplements that are helpful to them and their athletic stuff. They eat extremely nutrient dense because they need to. And whereas when I was 13, I was so concerned with how my body looked and what my clothes were and if I was the right size and what my hair looked like. My kids are concerned with how do we help our bodies perform better? And they're in sports now. And to them, their bodies are these incredible tools. And so how do they optimize them? How do they make them better? And I think it's just such a healthier mindset than I had at that age. And it's so awesome to see them choosing that for themselves because it's going to stick so much more than if I tried to force that on them. Yeah. And and that's great that they're in sports too. Or even if you have kids and they're not necessarily in sports, but they're maybe in painting or arts or whatever, uh, a community like that and having that subconscious, because it is kind of subconscious when let's say, for example, your kids, they're in sports. Well, they want to perform well in sports. What do you have to do? You have to take good supplements or you have to eat well if you want to get strong and excel in that X, Y, or Z sport. That's a great, that's a great point. So also I know that we are, you're constantly working on your health. You've come so far. I feel like we as human beings, we always want to feel better, be better. And that's not a bad thing, even though we may have our own health struggles and we may have overcome them and be like, I'm like 100% better. Like I'm great. However, I don't feel like anyone really, quote, has arrived in their health journey because we always want to feel better. We always want to excel. And that's not a bad thing. So knowing that and knowing that you are doing so much better, I know that you also are continually working on your health as we all are. So what are you doing currently to optimize your health and things like that? Yeah, it's such a good point. I love the way you phrase that. And I think it's that beautiful balance of having the things we want to work toward because as humans, I do think we're designed for movement toward something. And like we feel good when we work hard on something. And I think if we can balance that with also, um, like we talked about earlier, staying in a state of love and gratitude for where we are now too, that I think actually that makes the future stuff that much easier too. So after now I've kind of been through the cycle of having Hashimoto's and now it's resolved and I feel awesome and I was able to lose so much weight. Um, The last year for me has actually been a new experiment. So I mentioned my kids are athletes. I've never in my life identified as an athlete. That was not a title I would have used for myself even when I played sports when I was younger. But I kind of learned from my kids of like, oh, it's really fun to see what our bodies can do as these amazing human tools. And I know the data, especially for women as we age and after 30, of the muscle loss that happens every year, the bone loss that can eventually happen, and just all of the things that line up there. And it also the research is really clear on there are some pretty clear-cut ways that are data-backed that we can at least slow those things down. And so with the goal of, I have six kids, I might have grandkids one day, but I want to be around for my kids as long as possible and be not just able to walk around, but be able to play and explore and function really well. So I've spent the last year with a focus on really trying to see like, what can my body do? And for me, that's been a lot of strength training, which I've done only a little in the past and have completely fallen in love with in the last year. Um, Also sprinting, martial arts, like all these things that were very much out of my comfort zone before. Um, I've started really experimenting with and staying really consistent with. And so while I used to think about the number on the scale and get obsessed with that number, um, now I almost never get on the scale, but the number I'm concerned with is the, the weight I can pick up off the ground or that I can do in different lifts. 
And it's been really fun because I think it was a healthy shift for so long um, with trying to lose weight. I was concerned with getting smaller. And I feel like I had that sort of pendulum rebound a little bit where I was like so concerned with becoming my tiniest version of me. And then I saw my daughter starting to pick up on that as well and realized, oh, that's probably not a healthy approach either. And so now I'm more focused on being the healthiest version of me and seeing how strong I can be. And so for the first time ever in my whole life, this last year, I actually intentionally tried to bulk up a little bit and put on muscle. So I think on the scale, I would probably be a little bit heavier of a weight, but my body fat is lower and I've gotten exponentially stronger in just a year, which I think is really cool, especially for women. Um, like guys can put on muscle typically faster, but we can actually put on muscle pretty fast. And we know that muscle as an organ system is actually really, really impactful for our metabolism, for our brain, for our cardiovascular health as we get older. You know, we often hear that skin is the body's largest organ, which I think uh, there's a world where you could definitely make that argument. I think that's a really important one, but a lot of people would also say muscles actually our body's largest organ system. And it profoundly impacts a whole lot of what happens in our physiology day to day. So I've been focused on not how can I lose weight, but how can I build muscle and strength in a way that is sustainable and that is going to hopefully mean it's easy to pick up my grandkids in you know 40 years and throw them in the air or great grandkids one day. Um, so that's been my pursuit and it's been so fun. Um, and I also started volunteer coaching high school pole vaulting with my daughter because she's an avid pole vaulter. And so I've been getting to do a lot of sprint workouts and explosive stuff and um, things that I would not have ever thought to tackle before that. So it's been a really fun journey there. Wow. Pole vaulting. That's something you don't hear every day. Yeah. Not something I expected to try for the first time after having six kids, but it's so fun. And it's great because it's a sprint. So a lot of explosive sprint and then a lot of core strength and upper body and all of the different movements. And so it's been a really fun experiment to try. Wow. And so uh, what does your diet look like today uh, versus what your diet looked like before you started your health journey? I know you had mentioned a little bit, but can you do a little comparison? Yeah, absolutely. So in college being, I, most semesters I had like 28 course hours per semester. So I was extremely busy. So if I ate, I was eating cafeteria food or cafeteria sushi or something in the microwave, which um, now obviously is not how I eat. Um, and then for a lot of years in the middle of that, I was trying to lose weight. So I was, now I can see chronically under eating. Like I can look back and think of entire stretches of time where I ate probably eight to 1200 calories a day, if that, which for you guys listening, the only person who should be eating in that calorie range is a two or three-year-old child, not an adult human, especially not a pregnant adult human. So I like looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, the human body's amazing that I made it through all those years. Um, so like I said, now my focus is entirely on how do I best nourish myself? So I focus on really nutrient-dense foods. And the only target I really pay attention to is minimum amount of protein just because I'm doing so much strength training that for recovery, that's a really big factor for me personally. Um, and then I look at sort of the micronutrient breakdown once I hit the protein target of making sure I'm just getting a wide variety of plant foods that have different types of fiber and brightly colored antioxidants, all those kind of things. Um, and then I experiment with supplements, but I always cycle those. I have a rule that I don't do anything every single day, including any supplement, because I don't want my body to adapt and downregulate any natural processes. So I don't ever take supplements on the weekend. And then I cycle what supplements I'm taking outside of ones that I take most of the time, like magnesium, for instance. 
Wow, that's a great tip. Yeah, to cycle supplements. And um, that's something that I feel like we should all maybe really be cognizant of because then your body becomes reliant on the supplements and then you really want to get the most nutrients from the foods that you're eating, not the supplements, hence the name supplement. <laughs> exactly. And I know that many people, including even Chris Kresser now says it's extremely difficult to actually get the entire range of what we need from food, just because we've all heard about how depleted our soil is and everything else. But I do think that's like that foundational principle first is start with the real whole foods. Don't, you can't out supplement a bad diet, but if you have the nutritious diet in place, sometimes you can do some tweaks with supplements that help you improve in specific areas. Yeah, for sure. And to your point too, you know, putting on more muscle, muscle definitely burns more calories. So if you are wanting to put more muscle on, then you're obviously going to have to eat more. And in fact, under eating can, obviously it wrecks havoc on your body in general, but also it slows down your metabolism, which is what you don't want. And so when you're doing that, you're doing a real disservice to your body by not nourishing your body. And and also to, to your point, you know, you had mentioned when you were in college, you were eating, you know, fast food and cafeteria food and microwave things. And you could have been eating uh, a good amount of calories, but uh, 500 calories from fast food versus 500 calories from a home-cooked nutritious meal is not the same, which I feel like a lot of people, there's those people out there, there's you know, the, the group of just uh, if it fits your calories or whatever, if it fits your macros or something like that, right? And that's just simply not the case, you know, from a Pop-Tart to some eggs cooked. <laughs> so to your point, it also goes back to nutrition. And I just love that you're, you look at all the aspects, you know, you are looking at nutrition, you're looking at the trauma and the mindset and the whole aspect of wellness. And I also want to point out that from our beginning conversation, you you had mentioned, you know, you have to heal that trauma to be able to really get healthier. And if someone's on a weight loss journey, for example, to really lose that weight. But also, I don't expect anyone to really heal like emotionally and still think that they can eat McDonald's every day as well. <laughs> so it is a whole, it's a whole aspect that you really have to address. Now, I do want to ask another question too. Do you intermittent fast? And if you do, how do you feel about that for women? And then also intermittent fasting versus time-restricted eating. And can you explain the difference? Yes, absolutely. This is a great question and a controversial topic. And I think this also touches back on that. There's a huge degree of individualization that comes in here. I don't think there are any blanket hard and fast rules that I've seen that apply to all women. Like we can look at general trends, like just based on being anabolic versus anti-catabolic, guys tend to do better with fasting as a group than women tend to do as a group. I have some genes that I tend to actually feel great when I'm fasting. So I had to actually learn to not fast too much because I feel so good when fasting and that my ketones kick in and I'm hyper productive. Um, so my approach now is that I do a seven-day fast at the beginning of every year, not for the physical side. That one actually for me is um, kind of a spiritual thing that I do. So I don't recommend a seven-day water fast to most people, but I do that for like the spiritual mental side, not the physical side. And I do think too long of a fast as a woman can be a negative eventually. Um, but I think 
the conversation about intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding is really fascinating. And I love the work of people like Dr. Sachin Panda, who I believe is at the Salk Institute, who researches time-restricted eating, um, and others who really look at intermittent fasting. And like I said, there is a little bit of nuance here, especially for women. And I know a lot of people are resistant to the idea entirely, and that there's kind of this mentality floating around a little bit that women should not fast. Um, but the way I kind of approach it is that we all fast to some degree every single day because most of us are not eating while we're sleeping. So while we may not want to consciously fast or restrict our food while we're awake, we all go through a period of fasting every day. So just understanding that, we can actually use that to our advantage by we know we should be sleeping enough. So if we can just extend our sleep a little bit, we're also extending the amount of time that we're not eating a little bit. Also, if you look at sleep as also a time of fasting, then it makes sense to do things like hydrate first in the morning before we eat food, before we drink coffee, because we lose water while we're sleeping. We respirate, we lose a lot of hydration. And so that reminds us to hydrate first thing in the morning. Um, But when we start paying attention to circadian biology, um, I think this is where it gets fascinating. So intermittent fasting typically is just eating within a certain time window per day. Time-restricted feeding and circadian biology look at not just a time window, but when is that time window, how long is that time window, and what's happening during that time window as well. Um, so I think for women, this can be a very powerful tool, but the part to pay attention to is, especially for women who are who have hormone imbalance or are in that sympathetic nervous system dominance like I was when I had unresolved trauma and my body didn't feel safe, adding fasting can be another stressor. However, you can do it in a very gentle way that's often very helpful if it works for your body, which is to eat in just a more circadian aligned timeline. So I think where intermittent fasting works great for guys, the part where I see it sort of fall short for women is when women just skip breakfast or skip all the early meals of the day, don't eat till 1 or 2 p.m., and then sort of eat the rest of the day. But that eating window is shifted later. And for women, it seems like a lot of women benefit from just, you can eat in the same amount of time if that's what you're trying to do, but shift it earlier. So after you wake up, after you get morning sunlight and hydrate, eating more early in the morning, eating protein and a really nutrient-dense meal in the morning actually is one of those signals we can send to the body that we're safe, that we're nourished, that we're getting the nutrients we need. And then if you want to eat in a restricted time window, just stop eating sooner in the evening, which is also great for sleep. So in general, circadian fasting, I tend to try to just, as a general rule, eat when the sun's up and not eat after the sun goes down. Um, That's just a really easy one to follow because that's pretty visible. We can see every day when the sun's up and when the sun's down. Um, I do notice a difference in my sleep when I do stop eating at least three or so hours before bed, just because logically, when once we digest, our body's not putting as many resources toward digestion, so we can use them for other t- forms of detox during sleep instead. Um, I also think what we eat, obviously, during that window makes a big difference, especially for women. So like all the things we've talked about, if you're not signaling to your body that it's getting enough nutrients and protein and the basic things it needs to build itself, um, that can be a stress signal. And then if you add fasting on top of that, it can sort of further stress the body. But I don't buy the story that women should never fast at all because like I said, we all fast while we're sleeping. I think we can just be smart about the ways that we're going to do that and experiment. And it seems like most women tend to do best in like an eight hour or um, longer window of eating per day. So some women do great with shorter fasts, but for the most part, women tend to like to eat in um, an eight or nine or 10 or 11 or 12 hour window versus guys can sometimes do great with a four hour window. Most women typically don't. Okay. So for like, for me, that those are great points. So like more time restricted eating for women versus quote fasting, you would say. 
Yes. And I think there's some factors that are not normally talked about when it comes to time-restricted eating or fasting that help a lot and that are sort of mitigating factors. So for instance, getting morning sunshine as soon as possible after getting up is a big signaling factor for our circadian biology, for the start of melatonin production at night, for healthy cortisol rhythms in the morning. And the second biggest signaling factor for circadian biology after light is food. Temperature is another one. So if we understand that those are big signals we can send to our circadian biology and use them to our advantage, we get that light first thing in the morning. We shift our food toward an earlier time of the day so we have more time for digestion after it. That helps us actually shift into a better circadian pattern for better sleep as well. Yeah. And I know, again, for each person, it all is individualized. And so for me, like I agree, I I definitely sleep better if I have an earlier meal and don't eat later. But I also... I don't, I wait to, to eat my first meal besides like my, I make bulletproof coffee. And so that's a whole nother topic, but I make that in the morning. But then I personally, I can't eat right away when I wake up because my body's, it's still waking up. And so if I like eat anything within like the first hour of me just kind of like getting up, it honestly kind of feels like it's stuck in my digestive system. So I, for some people, they kind of have to quote, wake up, get moving and be like, okay, now I'm ready to eat something versus get up in still in your pajamas and you just like shove a piece of toast down. So it, I think it is individualized. And so when do you start um, your first meal? Yeah, to your point, I think it goes back to like we're each our own primary healthcare provider and figuring out what works for us is the best plan. Uh, I'm similar to you in that I will wake up usually like 6.30 or 7, get sunshine first thing, um, and then in hydration. So my my sort of rules are sun before screen. So I get outside before I look at a screen, before I eat, before I do coffee, before any of that. Um and then hydration before food. And so I will spend that maybe first 30 minutes outside with either a cup of herbal tea, which doesn't actually break your fast if you're intermittent fasting, um, or a big quart of water. And I try to get all that hydration in to rehydrate the body from sleep and let my body have about 30 minutes to hydrate before I would introduce food at least. And I often don't eat for 60 or 90 minutes or more in the morning either. Um, And I always make sure like light and hydration are first. I've also been experimenting with adding certain minerals to that water first thing in the morning, which seems like a time when our body is more willing to uptake certain liquid minerals in water. So I've been experimenting with things like silica, uh, magnesium, and just electrolytes now that it's really hot where I live. Um, And then I'll try to eat a very intentional meal somewhere in that morning time zone that has a lot of nutrient density. So I make sure it has protein. I make sure it has some form of healthy carbs, usually from vegetables, some fruits, brightly colored things, some fermented foods. Um, I just try to really nutrient pack that first meal. And then I'll usually stop eating, like I said, by sunset at the latest, but I really feel best when I stop eating by six. Yeah. Now, what is the downside, if any, to holistic health? Um. Oh, that's such a good question. I think uh, anything to the extreme can always have a downside. Um, And I definitely, I've fallen guilty of this myself and I've seen it happen to many people where we get excited and we get into holistic health and then it becomes an exception, obsession. And then at the extreme, obviously we have things like orthorexia. Or I also think there is a little bit of an element of when you have a hammer, everything becomes a nail. So if we get so immersed into holistic health that we start to see the problems with everything, I think that can also like be a little bit tough for our mindset. If we kind of have this mindset that everything's toxic, everything is out to get us, even if that may somewhat be true in today's world, um, I think it, it is possible to take it too far. So I always try to balance it with 
the rule of 80-20, which I use at a lot of a lot of areas in my life, um, and realize that also stress and guilt are really bad for us as well. And so how do I integrate these habits in a way that are it's positive, it's uplifting, it's sustainable, it can be lifelong, and it's not fear-based. And I think that even touches on what we talked about earlier. Like we we're not restricting food because of we're trying to judge our bodies or make them be a certain way or out of fear, but out of love. And I think if we can keep that as our pulse, that also helps us avoid a lot of the pitfalls that can come with it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely good to be educated and know what's going in your food and know all the things because you don't want to be ignorant, of course, because that can obviously cause other issues if you're just ignorant about everything, right? So you do want to know, but also again, not have that fear and and still be able to just enjoy life and not being like in a fight and flight mode all the time. Yes. And staying out of that idea that like everything's out to kill me of realizing like, yes, I'm aware of these things that are going on. I'm going to make the best choices whenever possible. And my body is resilient and capable and healing. Yeah. Okay. So last question, just for time's sake. What is your favorite meal that you, if you, like on a random Wednesday night and you're just home, what's your go-to? Mm, I do rotate quite a bit, but um, one tip I have is I always bulk cook my proteins because I'll find like I will crave certain different proteins at different times. So I bulk cook those at the beginning of the week in without um, really strong spices. So they can kind of go in any direction on any given night. Um, but my favorite things are something along the lines of like a Buddha bowl that's got a lot of different kinds of colorful roasted veggies. I'm really big on like the hot salads right now with roasted veggies and all kinds of different colors. Some kind of protein, um, I would say, Shrimp and chicken are favorites for me right now. I also love sardines. I know many people don't. And then I'll top that with all kinds of things like fresh herbs or sauerkraut or beetroot or hemp seeds or just whatever I'm kind of feeling that night. And then some sort of homemade sauce, whether it's like a tzatziki sauce or a dressing or a marinade of some kind. Um, and I love that because it can go a million different directions and you could eat that actually every night and it never tastes the same. But I love it for its convenience and for its nutrient density. And then I would say for treats, I love like any fresh fruit really, but raspberries. And so sometimes I'll do like raspberries with dark chocolate. Oh my goodness. Now you're getting me hungry. A, a good Buddha bowl. You can never go wrong with a good Buddha bowl for sure. Thank you so much, Katie, for coming on. Now, where can people find you? Tell what's your social media. Give us all the links and we'll be sure to put them in the show notes too. Well, thank you for having me. You're a phenomenal interview and this has been so much fun. Um, I'm just Wellness Mama everywhere online. Everything's at wellnessmama.com and I'm Wellness Mama on social media and the podcast is called that as well. And then I do have a brand of physical products called Wellness Ness, which is wellness with an E on the end. And those are EWG safe, natural things like hair care, toothpaste, et cetera. And that's at wellness.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McComb. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. If you're looking to take back your health, it's time for you to listen to the Real Foodology podcast. From the producer of Digest This comes one of Apple Podcasts' top 10 nutrition shows, hosted by integrative nutritionist and real food activist Courtney Swan. 
The Real Foodology podcast is on a mission to change the way we eat. Courtney interviews doctors, food experts, health professionals, and nutrition pioneers to bring you the best info so you can thrive. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of how impactful our food choices are. But it's never too late to start on the path of better health choices. You'd be so surprised how resilient our bodies are when we start taking care of them. Yes, it's overwhelming, but that's why Courtney's here to help. She breaks it down for you and makes the information more accessible so that you can make more informed decisions in the grocery aisle or restaurant. Listen to the Real Foodology podcast today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resonant Media.